This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. So I had an absolute blast on this week's podcast. Um, Steve Miller, uh, he literally is a rock and roll star. When I was in high school, his albums were ubiquitous. Uh, Fly Like an Eagle, Book of Dreams, uh, those were always on the radio. I've been a fan of his for a while. Uh, I wish we had more time. We were talking for 90 minutes. I got to like a third of my questions. Every single question led to another story of his. And when a guy like Steve Miller is telling you stories, you sit there, you shut up, you listen and and enjoy the ride. It it was really a blast. Uh, One other funny little... uh, Funny little story. So the show finishes. They have to go somewhere, and I promised I would get them out at ta- on time. We're still a half hour late. We're, we finish up. He signs a couple of albums for me, which was really nice. He didn't have to do that. He did a little uh, picture of, of the Joker uh, on one of the albums. I thought that was super cool. Um, I'll, I'll take a picture and post it on Twitter. But then we're outside, and I take we're taking photos in order to... You know, I take a photo of every guest, and it's he and I taking a photo. And as, as, <laughs> as we're taking the picture, who walks by in front of us but none other than Mr. Mike Bloomberg? And generally, the protocol at the Bloomberg building, when anybody famous is around, uh, you know, it's a, a quiet nod. It's very low-key. Every time I'm there, there's some famous... Uh, hedge fund manager, musician, actor. Uh, I'm in and out of the. I'm in and out of the the green room for uh, Charlie Rose because where Bloomberg Radio is is adjacent to that. I always see all sorts of amazing guests there. But anyway, we're standing there having our photos taken, <laughs> and it was cute to see Steve Miller sort of gush over a celebrity to him. Hey, there's the mayor. Mr. Mayor, hi. Nice to see you. It was it was really very amusing and very charming. And and the mayor just kind of nodded and walked by. I, I can't imagine that he had any idea who this was. Um, but this was just a charming and, and delightful interview. If you are at all interested in the music industry, recording, rock and roll, anything along those lines, this was really a crazy educational experience. All your worst expectations of of the record industry are met. With no further ado, my conversation with Steve Miller. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today has gone by a number of names. You might know him as the Space Cowboy, the Gangster of Love, or just Maurice. He's best known as Steve Miller, an American singer, songwriter, guitarist. He first formed his band in 1966 in San Francisco. His greatest hits album, 1974 to 1978, sold 13 million copies He has 12 albums in the top 40 in the United States, and all told, he has sold over 60 million copies. Steve Miller, welcome to Bloomberg. Hi, Barry. How are you? Great. I'm I'm thrilled to have you. I have a million questions for you. 
Um, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I, I've seen you live several times, both with the Steve Miller Band and when you were uh, supporting Lawrence Juber yep. at, at the Cutting Room. That was a wonderful evening. Yeah. Um, let, let's go way back. You, you grew up early in your childhood in, in Wisconsin, and the rumor is you were taught your first three chords by none other than Les Paul. How well, on earth did that come about? This was, it was really interesting. My um, my family lived in Milwaukee, so I was born in Milwaukee, and it was 1943 when I was born. So World War II was still on. Mm-hmm. In 1950, 1948, 49, 50, somewhere in there, I was about five, so I guess it was 48. Les Paul came to town. And he and Mary Ford were not married yet, and they were playing at a nightclub around the corner from this funky townhouse we lived in, in mm-hmm. downtown Milwaukee. My dad had a Magnacorder, which was one of the first professional tape recorders in the United States. It was like German technology stolen during World War II, and now America had tape instead of wire recorders. And the old man was really, you know, he had a magnacorder. And uh, he went around the corner and introduced himself to Les Paul and said, I got a magnacorder and I'd like to come in and record you. And Les said, that'd be great. Come on down. So my father started taking me to, to a place called uh, Jimmy Fazio's Supper Club. Mm-hmm. That's where this was. And started taking me into the nightclub. And I was watching Les Paul and Mary Ford, and what they were doing was they were rehearsing. They were playing in front of an audience at a nightclub in Milwaukee, off the beaten path, right? Putting their show together for their television show where they were going to come to New York and do this television show. So Milwaukee, way off Broadway. Yeah. And, you know, a little sidetracked and close to where Les, Les was born and where his mother lived and stuff like that. So we're watching Les Paul and Mary Ford perform, and my father's recording it, and so Les Paul's coming over to the house and listening to it, and pretty soon Les and Mary and Sonny and Bert, my mom and dad, were really good friends. A lot of drinking, smoking, carousing, listening to music, and pretty soon, you know, Charles Mingus and, you know, Tal Farlow and Red Norvo and all these people were hanging out at the house. And I was like, going, yeah, boy, this this looks like fun. You know, this this playing music is really great. I already had a guitar. My uncle was a musician. Mm-hmm. I had another uncle who played in the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. He's a hot jazz violinist. So you have a lot of musical influences in yeah. your family. And my mother is a great singer, jazz and, singer. Yeah, and um, so. Uh, during the Depression, all my relatives went to medical school and became doctors. Uh-huh. So my dad was a doctor. He was a pathologist. So this was all hobby stuff for them. I got my uncle's guitar. Les Paul shows up at the house, shows me my first three chords. I'm in love with Mary Ford. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. And unknowingly, I understand that he's like speeding this tape recorder that we have up and down. He's making his guitar solo sound faster, and you know he's records it slower, so you play it back. Yeah, or he records faster, and he's got a bass line when he Uh plays it back at normal speed. And that Mary's singing multiple parts. Well, you know, thirty, twenty, 
25 years later or whatever it was, that's that's how I started making my living was playing multiple parts on guitars and doing multiple vocal tracks. So that raises an interesting question. At, at what point did you say to yourself, hey, I can make a living with this, this music thing? Well, uh, I didn't really think I could make a living in this music until about 1963 after I'd gone to the University of Wisconsin for four years and the University of Copenhagen for a year. And I never really thought I'd be a professional musician because I came from this very middle class like, hey, mm-hmm. you're going to have to get a job, pal. Right. And uh, as much as everybody loved musicians, there weren't any good gigs. Being a musician wasn't a good gig. It's working, a tough life. Yeah, working in a nightclub, you know, basically with drug dealers and hookers and cops and mafia people. You so, know? so not a lot of money and yeah. not great surroundings. Yeah. So after the after school, I went down to Chicago and Paul Butterfield was playing. Paul Butterfield Blues Blues Project. Band yep. at a place called uh, Big John's. Mm-hmm. And um, he had a record contract, and I went record contract. Hey, I could do this. Maybe I could make a living doing this. And so I moved to Chicago. Immediately put a band together with a guy named Barry Goldberg, a great keyboard player and mm-hmm. writer. We immediately got our record contract. Had the worst manager in the world, and I learned all the things not to do very quickly. Got out of that and then ended up in San Francisco and had a reset and was able to get my own contract and do my own business. And you very famously had a tremendous contract that was different from a lot of standard music well, you know, contracts. It's, it's funny, you know, like uh, it, what, all I did was just common sense. And um, I, I did a couple of things. I knew a couple of things. And one was... I needed to own my publishing, and mm-hmm. I and I had had this little taste of recording in Chicago with Barry for Epic Records, I think, or Mercury. I can't remember what it was. And we had a little run. We were on Hullabaloo with the Supremes and the Four Tops, mm-hmm. and then it was all over. And I learned that like I didn't want anybody coming in and telling me what to play or record. Like, hey, kid, you need to move more, and you know you ought to change those trousers you know there was a lot of that and uh you know i i didn't want anyone to own any of my songwriting so when i got to san francisco i was in the middle of a feeding frenzy i had 14 record companies trying to sign me only three of them were important the rest of them were all like you know fly by night independent small big promises no delivery kind of guys and I had a friend who was a prosecuting attorney. And I went to him and I said, these guys are thieves. <laughs> There's built-in theft. Uh, they're they're going to want to do this, this, this. And what I need is complete 100% artistic control. I need to own my publishing and my songwriting. And I need enough money to make five albums. It's going to take that long. And as long as they're here... I don't, I'm not signing a deal until I get those things. And everybody went, well, that's unheard of. And, you know, basically it was just common sense. It, it wasn't anything, you know, sometimes big ideas like that to just seem so simple, like Les Paul was a genius, but all the stuff he invented was really simple and straightforward. And you think about it later, 40 years later, what he achieved and you know this multiple track tape recorder your engineers fooling with now is a direct result of les paul's ideas in the 40s so what's the what's the old expression uh common sense is surprisingly uncommon yeah 
I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Steve Miller, best known for the Steve Miller Band. He is a singer, songwriter, and guitarist, and pretty much uh, beloved by musicians all over. We were talking earlier about the feeding frenzy in San Francisco when you first went out there. Um, you told an interesting story some time ago about how Capital tried to put you into their midnight recording slot, if I'm remembering <laughs> that correctly, and you would have nothing of it. You ended up going to the UK? Well, it was it, what happened was we were a San Francisco group, and there's a big dichotomy between L.A. and San Francisco, and L.A. was like this horrible commercial group of sharks. right. And San Francisco was this hippie, peace, love, and happiness kind of community where all the bands shared information and everything. So Alan Livingston, the president of Capitol Records, was the guy who negotiated with me for nine months and finally said, okay, you can, we'll give you the contract you want. We really want to sign you. So we load up all our gear and we go down to L.A. to do our first recording session. And I'm thinking, I just signed with Capitol Records. Les Paul's label, my godfather's label. I can't believe this. This is so cool. And now I've got all these great resources and it's going to be, you know, I'm going to make this great album. They said, well, we don't have any studio time open until midnight. And I went, midnight? And they said, yeah, we're just booked. And they said, but we've got you booked at midnight. So I come in at midnight and we spent a couple hours unloading all our gear. We just drove down from San Francisco setting it up. And we start to do a session. It's like four in the morning, and I just say I can't do it anymore. I mean, I can't sing. I'm I'm exhausted. Right. You know, Got to go to bed. So I said, all right, we'll come back tomorrow at midnight. I come back the next night at midnight, and they say you got to move all your equipment out of Studio B and put it in Studio A. And I said, well, we just set set it up. What's going on here? And they said, We've got somebody else coming in with a studio. You're gonna have to move it. So we put moved. that in Studio B. So we we. <laughs> Moved it to Studio A, got ready to record, and the engineering staff walked out. Uh, so they didn't like us. They thought we were hippies. They they thought we were anti-war, demonstrating bad people. They really did not. And these were a bunch of like crew-cutted ex-Vietnam veteran kind of union studio guys. And and this was a situation where, as a musician, I was not allowed to touch a microphone oh, or really? the console. Wow. And there was a guy from the musicians union who sat in the control booth to make sure nobody did it. It was the craziest, goofiest, overly feather-bedded, just everything that's wrong with unions was on display right there in, in L.A. So second night, I've had it. So I call up my... My executive producer at Capitol Records, John Palladino, an ex-Marine, by the mm -hmm. way. He was a great guy. I loved him. And I said, John, you can have the money back. You can have your contract back. Nuts to you guys. I'm done. You know? And, oh, no, 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 no. God, no, no, Steve. No, 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 no. And I'm going, <laughs> you know, listen, this just isn't. And so because I had all of this control, I then started looking around for different studios, and I realized that like these guys in L.A. didn't like me, and they weren't going to help me. They were going to sabotage me, and that this new deal I just made with Capitol Records where I thought I was going to get all this help, I was one of like 200 bands fighting for limited resources with 
razor blade men, right. you know, and management and stuff. I mean, I just jumped into a world that was like, I was so naive about the politics of the record company and the corporate world. Those are all the worst stories you've ever heard about the record industry and Los Angeles and what it's like to sign with it. a major. All of it. You yeah. lived it. Yeah. So, so what did you do in response to no studio available? So I started looking around in London and we found out about Olympic Studios Talked to George Martin, who's the producer of the Beatles. Sure. He was willing to do it, but he wanted uh, 5% or something, and I wouldn't give it to him. Well, he's George Martin. Yeah. And I was going, no, 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 no. It's way too much. <laughs> so I worked with Glenn Johns. Glenn was an engineer. So we pack up everything, board the USS United States in January, mm -hmm. make an Atlantic crossing that was, I was seasick for five days. Man. Right. It was just, oh my God, what are we doing? Get to London, go over to Olympic Studios set up, and Procol Harum's there, Peter Frampton's there, the Rolling Stones are there, the Who just left. You know, I mean, just Jimi Hendrix has been to town. Everything's going on, you know, and we're right in the middle of it. And, walked and, into and you have yet to record your first album. Right. This is the first one. Yeah, and we land there, and as soon as we started playing, it was like we had brought manna from heaven. We were the most juicy, livest, greatest sounding band in London at that particular time. Everybody else sounded real stiff and, you know, working real hard to make pop records and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they just loved us. So we had this great, great period of sessions and we ended up making i think the first four albums were actually you know at wally hiders in san francisco and then back to olympic to mix and back and forth and nicky hopkins was playing with us and we were just in the middle of this world international scene it was much better than being in la and engineering was much hipper. And there was a guy there named Dick Swetnam who invented a lot of the digital equipment we all use today. He was one of the inventors of it. I mean, he was talking about the digital, the coming digital world. And we were going, what? It's going to be on crystals? There's not going to be any tape? What? You know, we didn't know. It was 1967, you know. And um, so that's how it all started. And it was really exciting. I read something, I think it was with... Um Gibson Guitar had a uh, a series of interviews with you, if I'm remembering correctly, and that may be wrong. Mm -hmm. But you talked about the process that the Beatles had for recording, where you would spend days on a song and they would bang stuff out. Well, you know, later, in, in 1969, I, I got to meet the Beatles. And um, they were working on their last album, and Glenn was the engineer. And I recorded with Paul. And I was hanging out with these guys for a few days. And, um, you know, it was so hard as a writer and a guitar player to have rubber soul come out, right. you know, and you get to go, oh, God, what? Ah, you know, it's so great. You know, they just were so in the moment and so incredibly talented. If we had the book, of the 400 songs that the Beatles recorded, and we went through it, you and I would both be going, oh, my God, I forgot about those Every 30. song. I forgot song about, oh, my God, look, 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 look. It's an so, astonishing catalog. It is an astonishing catalog, all done under incredible pressure, 
uh, horrible situations of just you know being followed by the press. It'd be if we were the Beatles and we're 1969 and we were doing this interview, there'd be 50 people right outside that window going, "Steve just or Paul just scratched his head," or that he just stood up. You know, I mean, they'd be be reporting on everything these guys did and how they were creative. I don't know, but what I found out was they had a, a language. Paul and John communicated at a level that was so funny and so witty and so clever. I mean, Paul walked into the studio and said, good morning, everybody. And you kind of went, wasn't that great? Did you get that on tape? <laughs> did, did you hear that? It was just that good, you know, and the, their conversation back and forth and stuff. And I just went, ah, I, I really am in the presence of, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein or something. Right. I mean, you great. Know, I mean unbelievable writers. And this, I, I have limitations. These guys don't. And I don't have, I can't be as great as they are. And then I found out that they just made, they, it was like work. They got to the studio at 10.30 in the morning. They were done at 3.30 in the afternoon. They had their tea break and they went home. And they recorded four songs. And if they needed something else, he wrote, hey, Jude, that night. And they'd come in the next day and do it. It was like that. And what I found out, even that was even more interesting, was when I was there, I saw them record Get Back mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Come Together, I think, was the other one. And uh, they had 40 songs in the can. Already waiting to, to come out. Yeah. And they, I mean, it was an unbelievable lesson. 40 songs. They were ahead of the game, 40 songs. Everybody else was like, well, the boys are working on the album and uh, they've got a tour right now and it'll probably be, you know, two years until they come out with another record. What? What was the name of the band? You know, and these guys were so far ahead of the game uh, that they did a couple of things and they just pulled like eight other songs and they threw an album out. I went to Paris to go play a gig. And when I came back three days later, that song and record was number one in Europe. It was already recorded, released and out. I mean, it was the recorded charts. the week before it was out in the next three days. And I mean, the, it was like totally different than America where they're going, all right, you finished the album. Now, next January 27th, <laughs> we're going to release it. They, they, I mean, it was no just fooling around. Hot off the press, number one. And um, and Paul liked those first takes. He said that each subsequent take wasn't as good. I recall you saying something That's like right. that. That's right. It was always the first take is the one that has the magic. Mm -hmm. So if you're not really paying attention you kind of go oh wait a minute i want to do that again it's not going to be as good and then well i can make that better then it just goes down the level of of inspiration or presence gets duller and duller and duller but when you walk in and lay it down you're done i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio my special guest this week is a rock and roll star it's steve miller of the steve miller band singer songwriter guitarist um, his band has sold over 60 million copies and he was recently inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame, which led to some interesting controversy. So, so let's talk a little bit about the rock and roll hall of fame. I, is this a cultural institution or is this really just a tourist trap in Cleveland? Well, you know, it's not a tourist trap in Cleveland. It's a beautiful museum in mm -hmm. Cleveland and a beautiful site. 
And uh, it is a cultural institution, and a lot of great work has been laid down and put in place. Mm-hmm. And the current leadership is exhausted, mm-hmm. doesn't have a vision, and basically is just running it to uh, to gather funds for the future. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing right now is very flimsy. You know, they've set up a lot of stuff, but they're not following through very well. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, when Ahmed Erdogan put it together and Jan Winter was his little henchman and Alan Grubman was was their lawyer, Mm -hmm. you basically had a combination of three egos and the the communicator was Ahmed Erdogan. Mm -hmm. And Jan Winter runs snarky little tabloid magazines. That's the way he plays artist. So you have a situation where you have just horrible legal requirements for people who are inducted. Absolutely the worst. It's not just a straight up, hey, you're inducted, show up at the state, sing Uh, a song? We had a 90-day argument. It never has been totally resolved. Mm -hmm. Completely unreasonable. Uh, We had all of these problems. And so what what you have when when the leadership is snarky and legally incorrect, you have a situation where most artists that I saw were kind of going, I don't care, I'll sign anything, I'm in the Hall of Fame, man. Right. It's just like when you're the kid who's written the songs and I bring you to my office, take you out for dinner, then I take you over to the recording studio, then I bring you back to my office with the platinum records in the wall, I hand you a 30-page contract and you sign it and sure. I give you a check for $10,000 and now I own everything you've ever, you'll ever do for the rest of your life. That's exactly the way they operated. And I just looked at it and said, you're nuts. I'm not, what, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not signing this. I'm not giving you, uh, you know, lifetime rights to that. I'm not going to provide this until you provide, you know, clear. Their contract work was so goofy. Mm-hmm. It was just silly. So the pushback, well, I should say the controversy that developed was um, you basically criticized them. You in 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 saltier language than we're using here. You yeah. had you had less lovely things to say, and it really carried quite a distance. And I want to read a quote to you. Bob Lefsetz, who's a music industry insider and has been writing yep. uh, about the industry for a long time, said, "What's what's so astonishing about this Steve Miller thing? The reach it's gotten. That's the power of truth." That's the power of the bully pulpit. So what's been the reaction to to your criticism criticism of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Are have have other musicians been mostly positive or negative? What's yeah, the feedback like? Um everybody I've talked to, from people who've been on the nominating board to musicians who've been inducted have said the same thing. They just say it's just awful. And people on the nominating board have said, you know, we'd go have these meetings, we'd talk about groups, and then Jan Winter and a few people would go into another room and they'd come out and tell us what had happened. And I, you know, one guy I talked to quit after two years. He just said, this is a waste of time. So what's happened is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a whole lot bigger than Jan. Mm-hmm. It's much bigger than his vision, and it has a much more important mission. We're talking about it now. People really care about it all over the world. 
And they're really missing an opportunity to spread music education and to, um, you know, basically make it a better, better organization. And right now, the board, all the people that operate and run the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, what you have is you have New York, which is disruptive, snarky, and out of touch and living in a bubble in Long Island mm-hmm. and thinking they know everything there is to know about the world. And you have these un- under underpaid people running the museum in, in uh, you know, Cleveland. Cleveland who are scared to death, who are afraid they're going to lose their jobs, who have these tiny little budgets, who have a beautiful building and they don't really have any leadership or any direction so it's just sitting there just spinning its wheels so what do you think the rock and roll hall of fame what do you think it was like me i've never been yeah i mean but when you watch the rock and roll hall of fame i mean when you see it on television what do you think so i used to watch the shows when they were on hbo and they were a little you know uh, all all award shows are full of hot air and a lot of pontification and you know, I've some of the criticism I've read aren't a whole lot of people of color, aren't a whole lot of women. It's pretty much a narrow group, and they need a little more diversity in the committee that's deciding who has yep. entree. And I think that's f- reasonable criticism. So you know, all of that's all obvious, obviously true. But <clears throat> I mean, just. When I saw it, it always looked like a party. It always looked to me like mm-hmm. Paul McCartney was having a great time with Elton John, who was having a great time with, uh, you know, whoever whoever was there, you know, with Chuck Berry, with whoever's ever on the stage. They're all there. It's all this great evening, you know. What it was for my class this year of 2016 was a legal argument where they started off going, no, you can't, you can only have two tickets. We want your band to come and play. You have to come and play. But we we're not giving you band tickets. <clears throat> and what, and the seats like are, are really expensive, aren't they? Well, they're ten thousand dollars a piece, you know. And <laughs> so so I mean it was just absurd. And then the contract commitments were just absurd. Nobody would sign it. Anybody with any kind of care about themselves wouldn't sign anything like this. And you'd say, well, what about these elements you want? We'd like to have some input. No, there's no input. Well, uh, who's going to induct us? We'll tell you who's going to induct you. You're not allowed to. They just were, they didn't want to have to spend any time listening to what I wanted to do. It was like, we don't want to hear any of your ideas, any of your opinions. We don't have time to fool with you. We're making a television show. Your sound check is next Wednesday at three o'clock in the afternoon. That was it. Period. So if I was running the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there would be a dinner for inductees and inductors and the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the night before. And I would present to the inductees the programs that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is actually working on. And I would say, you know, now that you're going to be inducted tomorrow night, we'd really like to have your help. You can join us. Steve, we know you know about, you know, publishing rights and stuff. Can you help us develop this? Could you teach a music class? Would you be willing to go to Cleveland and do, you know, all of that? None of that. There was no nothing. You know, so uh, you we t- didn't see each other. The inductees were really? never even in, introduced 
to each other. That's shocking to, to, you know, we put on a conference every year. Sure. And the night before, there's a big dinner and everybody gets to meet each other. Yeah. And you find out like all sorts of fascinating things about people. This was the cheapest, crudest, ugliest, (laughs) nastiest group of people I've ever worked with. And the great thing about it, the odd thing about it was somehow they make the television show look like everybody's having the best time. The guys who made that television show from HBO, they get my vote. I want them to shoot my next concert because they could make anything look good. You know, (laughs) Saturday Night Live just had their 40th anniversary. Yeah. And uh, Jimmy Fallon was telling the story of what the band was like. It was a nonstop rotating group of people showing up on stage and uh, like an insane A-list of all-time stars. And they would see someone in the audience and pull them up and they'd start. And that's to answer your question. And he described it as just amazing. And that's what I visualize the rock and roll hall of fame event to be like but that's you're what telling i did me, too that's what nothing i, I, of I the thought sort. this is going to be great so what i found out was everybody was leaned on and pressured and treated poorly we were never introduced i never even met the black keys when i walked in and went through security to get in the building the rock and roll hall of fame was a sound check uh-huh i had a hired handler hi my name's you know Cindy and I'm from, you know, Celebrity Services, and I'm going to be your handler. Come on over here and sit down in this little cement room with these two metal chairs, you and your wife. We need you to stay here for about an hour, and then we'll call you for your sound check. Go do the sound check. Then back to the little room. Then uh, there was like a cocktail party for 30 minutes that we went to and then left. And then it was like, there's your table over there. And we were taken to a table, sat down at a table with people we didn't even know. So this does not sound like a, no, no. a fun and, party. And then we're inducted, then went up on the stage and did my little acceptance speech, then went over and played three songs, then back down to watch the rest of the show, then back up for the the completely phony jam session at the end that was just noise, uh-huh. and then... Uh, into the back where it was like, hey, they didn't induct you for 23 years. How does that make you feel? You know, some punk kid, you know. So I just went, well, you know, here's how I feel. And it and was- And you told them. Well, you know, somebody came in, some woman came in and said, all right, that's enough. We're going to shut this down right now. And that's when I said, you need to sit down and learn something, you know, because they're just kids. They don't know. They don't know what they're doing. You know, the people running it are tired. They're weak. They're worn out. They need, they did a good job. They got a museum built. They they inducted the people they cared about. Now the gene pool needs to really be enlarged, uh, you know, and, and there's a lot that, that that museum can do. And it's a, and my tour this year, started in cleveland i booked it in cleveland and i went right to the museum and went over and went through the whole museum and looked at it all and looked at what they were doing and you know they need a lot of help at that museum they have an incredible building and they're trying you know they got some new kids in who are trying to run it right now but they don't have any money their displays are terribly you know, executed, the light leaks in the black tunnels, it's cheap, it's dumb. You you go in there and they have all this great stuff, but, you know, you can't see it. You can't, you know, it's a, it's a museum design problem, you know, and the, I mean, they're, 
they're in conflict with what the building is. The building's all light. It's all mm-hmm. glass. And they've like built these dark tunnels. Look, so look, I mean, it starts right at the bottom and it starts at the top and it filters down. And, and, and right now, like these guys need to retire. They need to be given a little badge and a little party and a pat on the back and let's give them a big round of applause. And they need to be put out to pasture. And this needs to be taken away from Jan Winter, who uses it as a tabloid. You know, he uses it to drive tabloid sales. That's what Mm -hmm. he does. That's his trick. Hey, the Black Keys don't like you. Let's print their article in your response. What do you say, Steve? You know, and you just go, Jan, I'm not helping you sell anything. You know, so that aside, you know, he needs to be removed. Grubman, those contracts, the stuff they give the inductees, that needs to be completely thrown out and made simple and clear and honest and transparent. Their business is cloudy, deliberately murky. They don't want any input. They don't want to have to waste any time with you sticky artists. They're worse than any record company I ever, ever worked with. Really? Absolutely. That That's amazing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Steve Miller of the Steve Miller Band. And let's jump right into our conversation about the future of music. We know recording isn't the moneymaker it once was. So so how do musicians make a living these days? Well, the first thing is you got to write yourself out of this ghetto. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we just had this uh, discussion about legal problems that people have and um, uh, the Grubmans of the world and the corporations of the world that use the Grubmans of the world to develop these these contracts. And so we're we're in a situation now where very few people can actually make a living writing music or performing it. And we're, you know, we're kind of in a circle, you know, I mean, right now, if you're not an actor and a dancer and a a video star and Mm -hmm. all of these things and groomed by maybe Disney from the time you're four years old, you you know, you're kind of going to have a hard time. It's always been kind of like that. There's always been those kind of entertainers, but the real, the only way to get out is, uh, I mean, the the tech companies are so far ahead of the government and regulation and, mm-hmm. and law, and they've stolen so much just because it's so easy. Sure. And I can't audit anything. I have a half a billion streams a year, and I get paid something like, you know, $37,000 for it, and I'm always in the wrong program. It's like the old ASCAP game. Like, oh, gee, you're in the wrong songwriters program. If you'd been in this one, you would have. we would have paid you the same as Frank Sinatra, but right. you're not. <laughs> you know? It's always a shell game for musicians, and it's always the artists are always the last to wake up and understand what's going on. So, you know, the guys who, we're running all of these streaming companies. They're screwing people like me. You know, they're stealing from me. They're using my work and making billions of dollars and developing their future because they can, because nobody can catch up to them. They're so far ahead. So if you're an artist and you can't do what I did was like make a record and take it to a radio station and go, give me a shot. Come on, man, play this. See if anybody likes it. My artist's name is Elvis. Put this on, you know, (laughs) 
do the Sam Phillips thing. Sure. You know, that's all gone. And, you know, to, to promote an, a new album costs about five or six million dollars. Yeah, it's crazy. You do the Justin Timberlake where you spend $40 million and you sell 900,000 records, but then you make six million dollars a night touring. That's a real, that's that one tenth of one percent. Right. And then everybody else is down here. I mean, Justin is a great artist. And I really, I like his work and I like his writing. I love his dancing. I love his bands. I love his arranging and all that stuff. But he's in a world like, like in five days he can make what I make doing 70 cities with 25 mm. people in a year. So that's, that's the dichotomy. And I'm considered like a real successful band. Cause I go out now and 6,000 people come to see me play or 10,000 people, you know, where it used to be the football stadiums right. and stuff like that. But that's what I do. I go out and I love performing. So I'm doing 70 shows a year. I have to travel to 70 cities in buses and trucks and planes and with 25 people and all that gear, you know, and that's a lean and mean machine. You so know? let's talk about the technology. I, I, I hadn't thought about this previously, but you have the streaming companies like Spotify and Pandora on the one hand, mm -hmm. then you have the all you can eat deals from Amazon and Apple. Mm -hmm. And then you have the iTunes. You can buy an album in its digital form. Mm -hmm. uh, are any of these lucrative for artists anymore? None. Not even if someone is. So if I go to buy an album off of iTunes or, or Amazon and it's 10 bucks. It's like the old days, 90 cents goes to the artist or something like that? Yeah, if. And when you go to Apple and say, okay, everybody put their hands up, we're going to do an audit. There's no audit. There's no audit. There's no, there's no way, there's no regulation, there's no group, there, there's nothing you can do. You know, if you call up Apple and say, hey, I don't like what you're doing, they go, well, we don't like what you're doing, and you know what? We're going to sue you for interfering with our right to do business. And what our business is cutting up your work and selling it any way we want to. So shut up or get sued. That's what Apple said to me really? when I called them up and said, hey, I don't want you to download Fly Like an Eagle as an album because I just downloaded it and paid for it and it came out in the wrong order. This is a book. It's a chapter. You know, you don't you don't print a book starting with chapter 7 and then go to chapter 1 and then chapter 9. And that's what you guys are doing. You're just cutting up my music. Oh, you can't handle segues? You don't know how to do something that folds over something else? You're just going to cut it in the middle wherever you think? Then don't even touch my music, okay? And they said, we're going to sue you for interfering with our right really? to do business. That's what it's like. Wow, that, that's crazy. So let's- you know, And so if I took your income mm -hmm. and I knocked it down by 90% and said, hey, what are you complaining about? You can do seven radio shows a week. You're only doing one a week. You're lazy. Get back in here and go to work. You know, you guys, it's really great. You would look at that and just kind of go, are you kidding me? To, to say the least. So so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about music, because really, that's, that's let's, who let's, you are. Let's take this one step farther. Okay. So in the 90s, mm -hmm. when I was touring and doing 70 cities a year, I was selling a million and a half records a year without any advertising from Capitol Records right. to my fans, to the people who came to see me play. 
I had maybe 80% of the songs on those records were mine that mm-hmm. I wrote. I owned the publishing. And all of that income augmented what I did, what I could pay my band, mm-hmm. the size of production I could do, and the kind of money I could spend on producing new records. All of that income is gone. Gone. It's just, and it that went was a from, substantial. It went chunk from of like three, four million dollars a year to me at the just ninety cents a record out of the right. fifteen dollars they're selling it for. Right, you know, uh, the dollar twenty seven plus or the publishing plus yeah. the performance rights. Yeah, you know, all of that is gone. That that money is just gone. That money is now what's made Spotify people billionaires. Right. Pandora, go down the list. That's You just go there's, down the list, man. And there's there's four or five guys that are sitting there going, oh, man, I can't believe we got away with this. No, no, no. You know, I mean, that's what they did. And every artist you've ever talked to has said the same thing. And so what you're telling me is like, yeah, but now you can go out and tour. Well, who's going to like be able to build a career now that you can't even, it's impossible to get a career unless you've got, Five, six million dollars to start it. You could go out and tour, but sure. an up and coming band doesn't have that I will base have been touring in 2018 for 50 years. Wow. So I have a built in audience and I have this deal with my audience. You come to my show, we're going to really give it up for real. You're going to have a joyously good, great time. And this is real music. We're not singing to sampled tapes and a fake drum machine and live band, live music, live band, live music, live sound, live PA, live everything. I've seen you several times. I saw you at Westbury Music Fair in the round. Yeah, that's so. The best part about that place is I get to watch like thirty-seven guitars. Yeah, spin around like you have a different guitar for every song. Let's talk about guitars and less about okay. So let's let's talk about guitars. (laughs) Yeah, you very famously said at a Christie's auction where Richard (laughs) Gere's guitar collection went up yeah when, and you know and when you, you read in, that quote i felt bad because it sounded like i wasn't impressed with his collection which was a great collection and there were some really wonderful instruments in that collection and i i have friends at martin guitar who were the guys on the phone buying their guitars back mm-hmm. he had some great martins in there so but, someone said to you uh, you're not bidding and what was yeah. your response well i just didn't see anything that you know i needed in, the, in that <laughs> that group and i i have an amazing collection of guitars. I have uh, about 450 instruments and I invest in guitars. Mm-hmm. Like you invest, you know, about, about 1990. Right. You know, I went, I called up a friend of mine and said, if I buy these guitars, do you think, what do you think this stuff will be worth later? And they said, oh, you can probably make 15, 20% on your money, Steve. And I kind of went, oh. And I get to play with them. And you mean it's, I have to go buy guitars? Oh, nuts. People want to find your music, your writing. They go to, where? Do they, where's the best place for? Well, you know, the the website, you know, stevemillerband.com. I mean, that's all the music and all the news. In our complete catalog is listed there. The titles, Tour dates, the songs. everything else. Yeah. And whenever we work on new projects and stuff, we talk about those. And, um, you know, there's lots of stuff going on that, that now it's just kind of uh, – just stuff for fun, you know? You know, so I started, and then I started building guitars, I started collecting guitars, and I started going around. Here's what it's like. Two weeks ago, I was in Paso Robles, California, and a friend of mine said, 
Steve, my father-in-law is a musician all his life. He's 80 years old, and he has a couple of guitars. Would you take a look at these? Sure. There's a 1955 Strat and right. a 1955 Gibson uh, ES350T. These are all worth a lot of money, aren't they? Just unbelievable, you know? So there are guitars out there all the time. And these are, are really great, great instruments. And I'm going to help them sell them for for uh, for that for her. their father-in-law needs the dough now. He's I, 80. You know, I've but. seen some old Les Pauls, the 1950s Les Paul, yeah. that two, three, four hundred thousand dollars So, yeah. And so that's what, you know, I, I think, Richard, I can't remember what, what was exactly at that show, but there was a Les Paul or two and some stuff. And they weren't particularly the, the greatest ones. And I had all these people egging me on saying, why don't, let's make a film about you buying guitars. searching for this number one guitar. And I got there and said, it's not the one. I'd like to make the movie, but, you know, not now. And um, what I do is I take like the latest and greatest guitars that Gibson makes, the just you know, I think in, in my estimation, the Billy Gibbons, Pearly Gates, reissue sure. 59. And I got that guitar. I bought eight of them. And I went all over the world, found them and bought eight of them and brought them back. And then I had another friend who had been spent his lifetime collecting real 1959 PAF pickups. And instead of paying $350,000 for a guitar like that, I took the 59 pickups, put it in the Billy Gibbons guitar, went, okay, Let's call this one number one. That's on the road with me now. You know, it's amazing. Like, <clears throat> so I love guitars. It's it's, it's an unending uh, game, and I just put sixty of my guitar. I'm seventy three. I'll be seventy three in a couple of weeks, and so now it's time to like share this collection. It's time to move it, call it down to just the very. You know, I mean, I've spent years and years and years collecting it, and um, they're all out. They're all they're in three different locations and they all hang on the walls and you can walk into a room and yell at them and all the strings vibrate. You know, right. it's like it's really a, so they're not in cases in a dark room. Someplace. Right. And it's just time to sell them. And we put 60 of them up for sale and we sold like, I think, 30, 32 or three of them in the first 48 hours. So Really? So there's there, a serious group of collectors who pursue these. There's people all over the world. That, Musicians, that is, collectors, both collectors. We've been speaking with Steve Miller, rock and roll songwriter, singer, guitarist. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the digital tape rolling, developed by uh, Les Paul, and continue talking about all things rock and roll. If you would like to check out my daily column, you could go to BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Steve, thank you so much for, for doing this. Barry, it's a pleasure uh, talking to you. I, Thanks I've been, for inviting me, really. I, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and I first met you going to Lawrence Juber's show, someone else who I've been a fan of for a long time. Not only did you yeah. sing Happy Birthday to his wife— but you were absolutely gracious <laughs> afterwards. You remember the show I'm, sure, I'm referring yeah. to? You were absolutely gracious afterwards when I interrupted you to to say to LJ, who was actually pretty hilarious, LJ, <laughs> uh, come talk to me on the radio about being music about what's the name of the show? 
masters in business. He goes, what am I going to tell you what stocks to pick? No, you're going to talk about all the stuff that you've talked about today. So it's been really, really interesting, fascinating stuff. There's so much I didn't get to that I want to jump into. Um, Let's talk talk about books. So we'll talk about books. I have to talk to you. Hold on, hold on books for a second. Okay. There are two things I must ask you about. Okay. One is the Metropolitan Museum, and yeah. the other is the Joker following the car accident. And I, I suspect oh. <laughs> these are both interesting stories. So I, I'm a big fan of, of blues as well as jazz and rock and roll. Uh, you mentioned Chicago. I've been to Kingston Mines. I've been to all these places there. Uh, and you really began as a blues guitarist. That seems to be your biggest influence. Yeah. You have a car accident. You break your neck. It takes a long time to recuperate. <laughs> and then you come out of that, and there's this radical change in the songwriting and playing. And the first album, The Joker, just blows up. So what took place during that convalescence well, that had you shift so much? I, I, I think you're kind of like... Um... This is all after the fact. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically, like, I had, I started out, the game was to make hit records. Mm -hmm. Les Paul made 25 hit records. You know, the Beatles had hit singles. Hit singles was was the the important game when you made records. Mm -hmm. Coming out of San Francisco, the groovy, you know, long play, all that stuff, Children of the Future, all those things, we're still trying to make hit singles. And we're learning. You know, mm-hmm. and we were untouched by AM radio. We were like unclean to them. We were right. underground, progressive rock, psychedelic, psychedelic right. dungeon hippies. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, we got stigmatized immediately, and we couldn't get any airplay. And Capitol Records just kind of went like, "Ah, oh, we can't get any airplay. We don't understand what an underground FM radio is. Nobody cares about that anyway. You guys are finished." So we were selling a lot of albums, but we were not selling singles. And so <clears throat> I was, you know, selling 200,000 copies of Children of the Future and 300,000 copies of Brave New World and 300,000 copies of whatever the next one was and two or 300,000 copies of number five. And, and, and um, we were working like 250 nights a year and we were broke we were like two guys to a holiday inn eating hamburgers and riding around in a step van with one roadie you know doing gig after gig after gig after gig and then going to europe and making the records and then coming back and going to europe and tour and not being paid at all for that and you know we were really struggling and um on the way to europe i was in a car wreck in new york we were going to the airport and I had a new guy who was driving, and we were in tandem. You know, there were three of us mm-hmm. in a convoy. And I said, listen, convoy driving's different. You can't go through a yellow light. Right. You're leading the convoy or the guy in the back. You know, you, you, everything's, you got to slow down, and you got to get everybody through. We can't lose the third car. Got right. it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just right into it, you know, and screwing up and he's going through this thing and I I was really concerned and I would turn like this and we got rear-ended at about 35 miles an hour and I got a hairline fracture in my neck. Right. You felt it when it happened. Oh, oh man. 
you know, I, you know, you, how everybody used to laugh at people that had suffered whiplash. Right. I felt like every joint in my body had crushed glass in it for right. six months. I mean, if I didn't keep moving all the time, if I went to sleep, I'd wake up and kind of go like, I don't want to move my wrist. Ow, oh, ah. It really was. So didn't work for a year or so. And during that, you know, I started thinking, wow, you know, I'm kind of like I'm at the end of my deal here. I'm like, this the seventh album is coming up. And uh, nobody's calling me from Capitol Records. Going, right. hey, you know, we, you know, you and your lawyer need to come in here. We need to talk about uh, where going forward. Nothing. And I'd sold a lot of albums, but they just were. I was just off their radar. I was fighting with them all the time. And this kid came to my house and he delivered some wood. And hey, Mr. Miller, would you listen to my cassette? And I went, yeah, sure. I put it on. I went. God, I'm sitting here arguing with 50-year-old men who don't like me, don't understand me. And, and this kid writes better songs than I do. At least I've got a contract. He's delivering wood to my house. I, I'm i just going to go down and make a record. So I went to make The Joker. I got the band in for two days. I cut a bunch of R&B tunes quickly. I thought I was at the end of my career. I wasn't some... Oh boy, this is the Joker's a hit single. That's a pop tune. You're like 30 years old. Is that yeah, about right? 30 something. Yeah. You know, and I figured, man, I'm done. done you know, <laughs> 23 to 30 something. And and I um, I go in and it's I got rid of all my producers. It was the first record that I produced myself. It was the last chance, my mm -hmm. last record. And I finished the album in 17 days. Uh, had a very brief meeting with, you know, uh, some people at Capitol Records, finished it. And then that afternoon, you know, we we snuck into like the executive room and like found out their speakers were out of phase and fixed all that playback stuff so that when we actually played it for them, they could hear it properly. I mean, it was amazing the how incompetent the, the, they were there and played it. And this one kid goes, I think the Joker sounds like a hit single to me kid in the room and i hand him a piece of paper and i said look here's a list of 60 cities i'm going to play in and these are 60 cities you need to have the albums and record stores when i get there you guys are not paying any attention to where i play and you need when i go to you know gross point michigan to play at ann arbor or you know for the university of michigan you need to have 5,000 records in town because i'm going to go play to thousands of people there and you know and they were just that's the argument left town and the joker came out and it went viral what we call going viral Damn. right now capital records didn't spend any money on it. they didn't promote it they just you know printed some copies and sent them and out off it went and when i got back Three months later, after doing the 60 Cities, I was I was driving to the theater, the Fox Theater in Oakland, to go play another small little gig. Right. And the Joker was on four radio stations at the same time, and I was angry because it wasn't on all five major radio stations in San Francisco. There were only five then. And I was like, ooh, it's here. Ooh, it's there. It was, it was They were playing it twice an hour, 24 hours a day for wow. a year on every AM radio station in the United States. And so I went from this underground guy who couldn't even talk to a DJ. You couldn't get arrested radio. before nothing. that. No television, no nothing. And, and um, you know, to king of AM radio. So it's time for a new contract then. <laughs> so when you were writing The Joker, 
did you have any sense that oh this is the one no. i mean the guitar lick is kind of unique and kind of fun it's a and really different song it's real slow it's real laid it's got back. a great groove right it's laid it's, back it's, it's, but it's so different than anything you did did you you had no sense hey none. you know this something really Nothing. something happened I, yeah, i'd stop thinking about singles really yeah so you do the new contract Yep. And then the next two albums are just monstrosities. Yeah, so I come back from that tour and Capitol says, oh, good, right back in the studio, come on, make another one. I went, uh, uh, uh. I'm I called up my agent, Milt Levy. I said, Milt, I'm taking a year off. Worked last time. And he went, what? You know, and I said, I'm taking a year off, man. I'm exhausted. I'm so burned out. You know, I took the band into the studio. We were there for two days and just went, oh, let's get Nothing. out of here. Just, we're just wasting money. And um, uh, then uh, went back to California, and and uh, there was a check for three hundred eighty-five thousand dollars in my mailbox with the junk mail. For the, for what? For the Joker. Oh, that was all the radio. That was just the every... first check. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's and a I good song. Went, I kind of went, hey, think I'll. Uh, Maybe I'll house. <laughs> Maybe we'll go back into yeah. the studio. Let's get an eight track tape recorder and put it in the house. And so I put it in I bought a house. I bought a new house. What, where was that? In Novato, California. Okay. Just the past Mill Valley, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit north of the city. And and I uh, uh put an eight track tape recorder in there. Dick Swetnam, the guy I had met in uh 1967 at, at Olympic Studios built me uh, my own little board, the first uh-huh. one that where you could have stereo panning in eight separate tracks for a headphone set and did some technology, things like that. And I started uh, work on Fly Like an Eagle and Book of Dreams. And I, I did them both at the same time, just like with the Beatles when they were ahead. I went, I'm going to get ahead of this. I'm going to have 30 songs. In so the you game. were you were paying attention and yeah. learning from, from your experience. When I turned in Fly Like an Eagle, Book of Dreams was done. And they, did you let them know that or no. you, you held that back? No, I didn't tell them anything. So before we get to the books, because there is stuff that I want to talk about, um, there's some really interesting electronic effects in both of those. And what yeah. otherwise could have been an intro to a song is separated as a separate cut. And yeah. I read somewhere that that was done on purpose. Well, I was very interested in electronic music way before this all started. I was into Stockhausen in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And that was all electronic music. And I met Stockhausen. I went to Germany and met him and watched him do recording sessions and stuff. And and those segues were pieces of music. Now, Capitol Records just want to go, oh, that's just nothing. You just throw intro. that away. Right. But the segues in Fly Like an Eagle, that album was designed so you couldn't take it off the turntable. And and those, in, those interstitials are so musically interesting yeah. And transition from song to song. So when they were longer than a certain amount of time, I I copywrote them. I mean, I had them copywritten as compositions, which they are. And you know, uh, I remember taking a, a scuba diving course one time in Hawaii, and kind of went in for the class. And I went, hey, 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 
and they had stolen my music and used it in their diving films. Oh, really? Stuff. People use that stuff all over the world, man. That that was like hot sauce to people. Jet jetliner and all those all those all segues. those intros. You you know uh, the the segue for into fly like an eagle. All that stuff is used and it's licensed, and they are compositions. Well, that turns out to be very um, prescient and, and fortuitous to go to my thesaurus. Because those two albums sold exceedingly well, and pretty much the greatest hits is the the bulk of those, um, as well as a couple of other um, uh, other covers. Uh, I'm uh, you send me uh, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that was on uh, Fly Like an Eagle. Uh, that was a beautiful version of that song. Thank you. You don't you don't do a lot of covers. You don't do a lot of other people's music. Um, no, you know I I. Um... Actually, I have, you know, it's just you, you, the stuff I've written overshadows it. I've done lots of covers. That's not true. I've done lots of Jimmy Reed tunes. On albums. Done lots I mean. of blues stuff. Yeah. Done lots of, you know, Let Your Hair Down and Bingo were all covers. Right. And so I've done, if you, I guess. If you take the, the full body of work and you say how many covers, I've, you know, maybe it's like seventy percent, seventy-five percent original, twenty-five percent other people's material. I was I'm not, listening. I'm not sure. I'm just. I was listening that up. <laughs> to Bingo this morning. I like it a lot. I'm surprised. Well, um, well, back to the roots, back to the blues. It's really. Yeah, those were great tunes. That, that, and that sounded like you were having fun doing it. Oh yeah. Which leads me to a question we skipped before. So, what sort of stuff do you really enjoy playing? And then we'll jump right into the books. Well. I, you know, this is sounds pretty stock, but I really love playing my music with my band. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm tomorrow. I'm flying to Chicago, and I'm playing tomorrow night, and I can't wait. Really? Yeah, I can't been, wait. You said you're coming up on fifty years. Yeah. You still love to hit the stage. You still love to I do it love live. Performing. I love the interaction between a live audience and a live band. And all of my songs are sort of designed where there's some spontaneity. I learned from jazz and blues. That's what I really, the people I learned from. And, you know, when I was watching Les Paul when I was five years old, he was soloing like a bandit. And it was all spontaneous. And it wasn't the same note, note every night. It was always different. And I learned that. So it's like you don't know exactly what's going to happen. I, I, I compare it to like playing basketball in the playoff level. Mm -hmm. It's the playoffs, okay? You've just done, you know, played, you know, 90 games or whatever it is. And now it's the, the new six-week season to get to the take finals. Take it up a notch. And you got to take it up a notch. you got to be really good every night. You don't want to be so good you're flat the next night. You don't want to ever be flat ever. You want it at this high professional level everybody's dialed in, everybody's paying attention, everything's set up, and it's like basketball. The ball bounces on the floor, and then the game starts, and it's a different way around the court for each song. And so that's what I really, I love that. And that I mean, I love playing blues. I like playing eclectic blues, tunes mm -hmm. like Louisiana blues, 44 blues, that have these odd rhythm signatures, and they're kind of Delta, uh, Appalachian, kind of early American things, you know, that got pulled out of Memphis and up to Chicago. That stuff is fascinating to me. So, so we've talked about your music. We've talked about your guitar collection. How did you get involved with the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the couple of shows that you've, you've done with them? 
Well, I decided to move to New York four years ago. I always wanted to live here just because of the culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rudy Penza, who has a music store, Rudy's, Mm -hmm. I've been working for the longest time to get the Metropolitan to do a a guitar show, and it was called Guitar Heroes Legendary Craftsmen from Italy to New York. It was about archtop jazz guitars, Mm -hmm. like Bucky plays, you know, John's dad. Mm -hmm. And John, you know, those, those are archtop guitars. Well, that guitar comes straight from Stradivari. It's just started in 1499 or whenever it was, and they've been making those instruments right. And there were some Italian guys in New York, D'Aquisto being, mm-hmm. you know, one of them, and D'Angelico being one, and Monteleone, right? So they decided they were going to do a show at the Met on these guitars. Oh, Steve Miller, you have seven D'Aquisto guitars. Jimmy was a really good friend of mine. He made my instruments. They were the best instruments in the world. Those were the ones I wanted to play. And um, can we use three of your instruments at the Metropolitan Museum? And I was kind of going, well, you know, hey, you know, I don't know. (laughs) And I'm talking to him from Sun Valley, Idaho, where I live and have my studio, right? They sent an air-conditioned, humidified air ride truck from New York to Sun Valley to pick up the three guitars and take them back to the Met. Very impressive. So I said, all right, all right. So they said, well, look, we know you're going to be in New York. Why don't you come by and say hi? And we'll do a little video interview. I said, I'd love to. So I go in, and I meet all the people in the music instrument department, and I meet Jason Dobney, and I meet Sally Brown, and there's like, I'm in a room, and there's like 40 D'Angelico guitars or something. Wow. And I'm going, you want to play this one? You want to try that one? And, and I'm looking at them, and I said, you guys are going to have a concert, right? You got a theater here. And they said, a concert? How would we do that? And I said, well, let me put a concert together for you. I mean, you should do that. So I really liked them. They really liked me. I helped them put a concert together. They said, we want you to join the board of the musical instrument department at the Met. So I said, I'll do it. So now, that after that, then we did the Martin show. Mm-hmm. And we're now we're redesigning the gallery. So... I just slid into town and... and Took over yeah. the Metropolitan Museum. No, I mean, I was invited, you know, just by luck. And, and you know, the same thing happened at Jazz at Lincoln Center. I went mm-hmm. to see Wenton play, and he said, I want you to help me put the blues pedagogy together for Jazz at Lincoln Center. We we don't know what the hell we're doing, and <laughs> we, we need to teach this, and we need to design these programs, and... Next thing I know, I ended up on that board, and and so you've become real uh, a cultural as part of New I York really, City. Really, have jumped right into the heart of it, and have found that uh, so many people receptive to my ideas, and I, maybe I'm giving Alan Grubman a hard time. He deserves a hard time, you know. Uh, there's a lot of great culture here, and there's so many great people working. I mean, I've met. So many interesting people, and the projects I'm working on now. There's a ton of energy in the city, are, to say the least. Yeah, are really wonderful projects, and the circles of support around all of it is amazing, and the educational reach of it is all great. That's why I can look at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and just smack those guys around and say, You need to wake up. They're telling me we have to wrap. You have places to go. Okay. I got lots of other questions. 
We well, have to we have to bring you back I, and do I this again. I want to give your readers some books. Yeah. Okay. Can we, can we do a quick book run? Really quick, I'm told. Okay. So, you know, your readers, your listeners, listeners, here's readers. A, here's a list of great books for you to read. Okay. In other words, by Anthony De Curtis, mm-hmm. really interesting articles about musicians. These are all music books. Delta Blues by Ted Joya. Mm-hmm. Last Train to Memphis, Peter oh, Gerlach. Fam- very famous. Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll by Peter uh, Gerlach. Um, How Music Got Free by Stephen Witt. That is Funny literally book. sitting on my night table. The red, red cover, right? Yeah, The Loudest Voice in the Room by Gabriel Sherman, which is- Roger uh, Ailes. Yeah, that's, yeah, you have to read that. And His New York Magazine stories have propelled yeah, this whole I, scandal. I bet, of course, and and uh, I'm your man by Sylvie Simmons, Simmons, which is a book about Leonard Cohen that's fascinating. So you want to read some musical biographies, and then the last one I recommend to everyone mm-hmm. if you really want to laugh, get the Eddie Fisher bio. It's it's oh, unbelievably really? it's hilarious. Um, I saw <laughs> K. D. Lang do a version of uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah that makes the hair on my neck. Oh, KD's just Un- one unbelievable. Of the she did a version of the Joker. She did an album oh, really? about smoking. No kidding. Yeah, and she did she did she's the only person that's covered the Joker and nailed it. Killed it. We're gonna have to have you back. I have so many more questions for you. Next time I want you to bring a guitar, we'll we'll play a couple okay. of songs. You know, I can do that. Thank Let, you, Barry. Next next time it. you're in town um, we've been speaking to the one and only Steve Miller. Um, uh, and now you're, I'm going to add to set up my legal defense. That's right. Uh, a raconteur in addition, in addition <laughs> to being a, uh, singer, songwriter, guitarist, Jack White that, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes where the other hundred and nine of these are available for free download that's how much i make from itunes is exactly this um i would be remiss if i did not thank uh charlie volmer my recording engineer taylor riggs my booker um you've been listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio